Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura. Promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise of his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Special thanks to our sponsor at the beginning of the show just to get everybody to know uh, where we we get our funding from on Christian Reconstruction Radio. CR 101 Radio Networks, a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. CR101radio.com is where you can go for that. And we're sponsored by GCS Apprenticeship program which is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be inspired and equipped to get involved with the uh, task and honor of being a Christian teacher or owning and operating their own Christian school. GCSApprenticeship.com is where you can find them to check out their services. So I'm going to just start out by saying that This is a message I feel is very important for the trials of our modern day as for Christians. In this 21st century, many of the descendants of Christians from times past who have a trust in the validity of the revelation of the Word of God as the absolute authority in all areas of life, um, we are being tried and tested at this time as to what we truly think about that infallibility of Scripture and that inspiration. While we must acknowledge that various levels of understanding and obedience throughout history and even now have issued from that trust, that faith in the Word of God, that is, some keep things differently, some have kept things differently than others, some believe certain words mean this or that, and that in opposition to others' interpretations, we have differences of opinion concerning what the Scripture is. Yet the unifying aspect of the Christian faith and of the Reformed persuasion that we can actually get back to the Scriptures as our authority, it comes from the phrase sola scriptura, from Scripture alone, is that we believe particularly what is listed to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to outline what Paul and 2 Timothy chapter 3 speaks of here, but I'm not going to go into detail into the stuff in the beginning. However, you could go entirely through 2 Timothy 3, and you could see absolutely everything that's happening in our society playing out with no questions asked if you have a biblical worldview. But what I want to look at particularly is that what was told to Timothy 
in 315, 16, and 17, a verse we are very familiar with and acquainted with. And I want to break it down into six particular points that are made, and then we're going to move on from there. Reading the scripture to begin with, it says, Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, Timothy, from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the King James says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There is a subtle different way to understand that that I think makes more sense in our modern language. But particularly, this this is the rules that govern or the reason we look back at Scripture alone doctrine. This is why we hold it, because this is what we believe that the Holy Scriptures are able to do. Paul says, the Holy Scriptures are given by the inspiration or the Spirit of God. That's something to be pointed out. And the first point I want to make about those Holy Scriptures that are given by inspiration is that first, first point, they are able to make wise unto salvation through faith. So you have to have faith which is in Christ Jesus, two elements. The scripture can make you wise unto salvation only through those two filters, faith, which is in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ Jesus. Second point is that all, all, not some, all of the scripture is profitable for doctrine. The third point is all of the scriptures are profitable for reproof or rebuke, that's to push you back, to reprove you, to check yourself, test. Fourth, for correction, after you've been reproved by the doctrine, you can correct your ways. Fifth, then for instruction, that you can then be taught in righteousness, that a man's Perfectness, this is where the difference of understanding lies a little bit in the actual Greek, and it's, it's there in the English and the King James, but it's a little bit harder to understand. But when it speaks of the instruction and in righteousness, it is to be understood that a man's perfectness or completeness comes from God. That's what it teaches us. Okay? The doctrine, the reproof and the correction, the instruction and in righteousness is all there so that a man not just a male, but a man's perfectness or completeness is known to come from God. We're instructed that everything about our completeness and our perfectness must come from God. That's the fifth point. The sixth and last point is it is for the accomplishing or the furnishing of every or all good works. That's a very holistic understanding of what the Bible is supposed to do. So with the people of God who, as Timothy received these six points concerning our expectation of what the scriptures have to offer, we will, by obedience, if we were led sola, that's alone, by the word of God, we will arrive particularly at a unifying expectation. We'll have an expectation of unity that comes in this way. That is hope of unification that we have. 
We may not be unified, but we have hope that the Bible has the ability to unify us, to be our authority. And while the carnal desires of man will thwart the efforts of the Spirit in the entirety of this life, we will be battling with the flesh and the Spirit. It's something we know is going to happen, something we've been reading about in the book of Genesis. We know that we have a a thwarted effort by the flesh on this life, but the fifth point of the six that I left, that I, I enumerated this scripture into, the fifth point given to Timothy in this epistle assures that a man's perfect completeness, that's how that word should be understood as perfect completeness, in this life may still come from God by the instructions of righteousness. Okay? So that the idea that nobody can actually be righteous in this life, complete in the eyes of God, and that there's no way to ever become uh, holy in his sight is wrong by the fifth point enumerated here. Rather, we have that hope that from God, by the instructions of righteousness that come from the scriptures, that we may be perfectly complete in Christ through faith. It's when we lose sight or doubt their points, these points, that the Bible starts to look like a book of fables. Yet, very rarely do you find one who has cast the Bible to the wind and replace it. They don't replace it with pure truth of the tangible or natural world around them, the things that you can touch, hear, taste. See, they can't replace it with that. There's a reason. They can never replace the scriptures or the faith of God, faith with the tangible natural world around them entirely. Rather, men look into themselves. They make judgments concerning what it is they will or they will not do to fill out the points that were made to Timothy. They will have another answer that will replace those points as to what will reprove and correct them, what will instruct them. Points that are as important to a Christian child like Timothy, who is raised in the Holy Scriptures from his youth, they have to be answered for everyone. It is when the focus of the use of this instruction manual is abandoned that a new judgment will come up, one which your forefathers feared not, and of the solid foundation that begat that child, you will become unmindful and you will eventually forget that you were formed by a force that was greater than yourself, that you cannot comprehend nor can any biologist or scientist of the most immense genius explain to you. The void of these points that are enumerated out of Timothy 3 will be filled in a new set of judgments by something. When the child raised in these points forgets any of these points, they will have to fill it with something. This is because no matter how you try to peer into the depths of creation, in the workings of the world around you, you will never find the answer that is natural or so organic, so tangible, that it does not originate with a supernatural spiritual creation. It's an impossibility, and everybody knows it. There's no one that truly doubts that unless they're mad. All of the ideas that are called scientific are, in fact, in this day, science falsely so-called 
if you think you can explain it any other way. You have heard of fake news in our modern day. It's a big topic. Talk about fake news that's being told. People today, because of various forms of media on TV, radio, and Internet, do not know what is really happening, what the real news is, what the real story is. Well, Paul nearly 2,000 years ago warned Timothy about fake science. Did you know that? Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, where we're going to focus more particularly. I'm going to focus on 20 and 21 at the present, and we're going to read the, more of the entirety of 1 Timothy 6 later. Paul says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings, oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Now, there are obvious different ways that some would interpret this warning, but there's only one real way that you can understand it. That is, Paul may be, and I think he is, warning Timothy to guard by turning away. I'm going to use a little uh, emphatic language to emphasize the meaning of each word to try to make it comprehensible and easy to understand. But Paul is warning Timothy to guard by turning away, as in not hearing, turning his ears, turning away by not hearing profane, which literally means basic. All right, if you were to break that word down in the Greek, it literally means something basic. And it, it has the idea of being that which is not spiritual, and that's why it's profane in the English. It contains that which is not holy. And then so he's telling him to turn away from basic, base, things that are non-spiritual, non-holy, empty talk, and then he says, in that opposition, or in the word opposition, it is actually antithesis. I think we know, if we know anything about a little bit of how science works, a thesis is a settled point or opinion. And it's generally in writing as we think of it, but it's just simply a settled point or opinion. And so an antithesis is that which opposes or comes by science or knowledge, some form of knowledge. And in this case, it is pseudonumos, which means falsely named, right? So he's un it's an antithesis of false science is what it is, or science falsely so-called, as the King James says, which is a good way to say it. Now, this warning or guard is not directly related to the preceding admonition of the six points I've enumerated out of 2 Timothy 3. In other words, these two texts don't just flow together naturally. I'm constructing them because I take 2 Timothy 3 with me everywhere I go throughout the Scripture because that is how I understand how a Christian understands the Bible. That's how I use it. But the observation is absolute that Brother Timothy is struggling against this force, okay, the brother Timothy that Paul's speaking to has this force of science falsely so-called, apparently, that is imposing itself into the church. He's having a lot of struggle and trial right now. And he's teaching him how to use the Word of God as his rule book. Science or knowledge is the Greek word gnosis, which literally and purely means to know. 
it's a good word. There's nothing wrong with it. I know some people who don't know Greek well enough say, well, that's related to Gnosticism, and it, it is. It's it's part of that word. But gnosis is used in a positive and negative way. It's just a word, okay? It's a good word. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with what it represents. It represents the process of determining reality and truth, something that's very important to me. That is true knowledge or science. The process of determining reality or truth. That's true knowledge, true science, not false. But science becomes falsely named science when it does not accurately or scientifically express truth as a matter of fact by definition. When you do not control the elements, the environment, and the method of the experiment, it is an uncontrolled experiment, and the changes, which we call variables, the variable changes, and that will change the outcome and make the whole experiment not trustworthy. We could say that a different way. It will make the experiment unfaithful as an absolute truth. You cannot determine absolute truth by an experiment that is not controlled impossible. Any scientific experiment where you are comparing multiple specimens and testing is to know or find a thing out. In fact, when you want to find something out, in fact, you got multiple specimens and tests that you're performing. To know what is so, the experiment is only accurate when the experiment has been controlled and has not been varied at all. Now, an uncontrolled experiment, you can just get the outcomes and start deducing things from that. But that's not how you get an absolute science on it. Okay? And you can learn this in ninth grade science class. This is like the first day of science class in ninth grade. This isn't anything special that I know. It seems like something that the vast majority of the world has forgotten, unfortunately. And so it's very important to remember what the rules of science are, what the rules of experimentation are, methodology is, that in any scientific experiment, it is of the highest importance to have no variable, no difference in the specimen or environment of the experiment, or else the findings are untrustworthy. And this is why evolution, for instance, is not a science, no matter what scientist so-called tells you because you cannot test it that way. And everything that's science can be tested that way, okay? So you know evolution is not a science, by definition. This is why psychology can never be a, can never be a science either. It's not a science, but it's a study, and it's admitted to be a social study. There's a vast difference, look into it. It's not something you gotta take me at face value for. Why can psychology never be a science entirely? Because it breaks the laws of scientific method in regards to controlled experimentology. That's why. It can't. This is because no one psyche, which is the Greek word for soul, funny because most psychologists don't even believe in souls. They think you're an animal. It is that which causes a man to be or to act or to become a certain way. That's what psychology is. Why do people act the way they do? Why are they who they are, right? But no one person is the same, and therefore they can never conform to a 
controllable study, a controlled experiment. You cannot control a person's environment the same, two people of the same environment, two people of the same genetics, two people of the same nutrition, and so on. The way they're raised, the way they think, it all changes. Therefore, psychology is an admitted social study for that reason. It is not a science. Why is that important? Because people say things like, psychology is a science. It's not. It's a lie. That's a lie. It's fi that's science falsely so-called. Do you want to see what the next wave of non-biblically non handled medical science is going to produce? Just start thinking about what this is going to do. In the times past, Christians have always had their hands in science. We're still burning off of the fumes of the Christian worldview right now. Just imagine what we're going to be producing next. Just consider the outcome of science and what it will soon be now that we have broken down the molecules into code. You know, DNA, we, we think we all understand this stuff. This is amazing. X's and Y's and chromosomes, it's all through the newspapers right now regarding transgenderism, as if like everybody in the world just knows what this stuff is, right? We've all heard about it somewhere. We all think that we know quote-unquote, we all know what it means, right? We know like it's a knowledge. But did you ever know that you can't actually see an X or a Y from the English alphabet under a special microscope? You know, if you look under this really great microscope that sees down to the molecular nu you know, nucleus level, you're not going to see Xs and Ys under it. You don't know what you're looking at. Ever thought about that? It's a code. It's represented in writing what a microbiologist sees that's trained to understand what his eyes can see and tells you about in the newspaper or in your book. It's what a microbiologist sees in a dimension most people can't understand. You won't know an X or a Y chromosome in a specimen from any other protein under a microscope. But yet we're making decisions on it now as if we're all masters of science. Yet those people who speak of chromosomes as if this is elementary school knowledge politically have decided that the bodily manifestations that are produced from God's creative force that geneticists are just now discovering, the force that manifests, which we have been allowed to see for thousands of years as beings, as just natural, normal beings with eyeballs, not with microscopes. The manifestation that comes from those X's and Y's as we describe them, doing what it is that they're doing for thousands of years with no microscopical uh, view, we knew what a male and a female is without all that. Just think what impacts this confusion will bring to a controlled table of experimentation for further discovery of truth, which was simply maintained by just knowing the book of Genesis in the past. Now, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to look into a microscope by any means. But whenever you allow whatever it is you think that you think that you know to affect laws and rules and regulations and life, when we've known what a man and a woman is for a long, long time, 
It messes things up. Men and women make babies normally and naturally. And atheists with big vocabularies of profane, vain babblings have concocted an intelligent-sounding antithesis from what is so called and so settled in observation. It's settled in nature what it is and what it means, which is observable. It's something we can see in true knowledge. We don't need a microscope to see it, but it's so much easier for those atheists to confuse us with vain babblings when we just talk about it. Well, we we know maybe he just got too many Y chromosomes, like we all know what that means, right? Some conversations I've had recently, and now they got they got settled Christians, people with a biblical worldview, or at least they say they do. They've got settled Christians now trying to understand why some boys act like girls and some girls act like boys, and they're considering it from a nucleonic protein level, like they know what that means, and they can make decisions on it. Now, rationally, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Who determines the Christian worldview? In this case, it isn't even observable nature. No, it's who interprets these words for you and tells you what they mean, and you believe them. Someone's telling you what this stuff means, and you believe them. Believe them, then it's still faith if you believe. And just consider, you can't escape that. So let's hope that the atheists that you're listening to interpreting meanings for you, who has no constraints of morality, mind you, because he's an atheist and he doesn't believe in God or morality, won't bear a false witness and tell you a lie. But what's keeping him from doing it? And now he's your new word of God. So there's a high standard of truth that people who believe in the word of God hold. We have to translate it and handle it accurately and truthfully. We believe it's so precious that that's what we have to do. The atheist doesn't have to do that because no morality constrains him from lying to everyone. But those lies will eventually destroy the experimentation that revealed to him whatever it was that he thought he knew at one time. It's kind of important stuff to think about. Truth even keeps all experimentation of science when men have no morals at all, truthful. The moment you lie about it, you change the experiment, and everything changes with it. Thus, Timothy, guard against by avoiding or turning away for base, empty talk of the antithesis, unsettled, which comes by what is named science but is actually false. 1 Timothy 6.21 continues then to say, which some professing the false name of science, some professing the false name of science have erred concerning the faith. There's a lot of meaning in this admonition to Timothy. And at this final close, Paul tells, of those who profess this falsehood, they miss the aim of trust, belief, or faith. What it means, it means when they err, they have missed the mark of faith. 
See, there's a reason why Timothy as a man of God needs to know this in his world, in Timothy's world. There is a reason we as wise walking Christians need to know this in our world. In Paul and Timothy's world, what was knowable and provable was and had been the subject of much talk and experimentation as of late. That was something that was really starting to flourish at that time. People wanted to know why things were and how they were and what, what happened. Gnosticism, as we had talked about it, Gnosticism, which according to its name, you should now understand what it means, was the universal religion of its day. It was universal because it could absorb into its gnosis, into its knowing, every other knowledge that it came in and encountered. It was designed in that way. It's something Catholics would like Christian Christianity to do as well, which is where you can see the, the Gnostic roots of the Catholic Church. It could absorb all of the philosophy and the mathematics and assume that it had the answer for all of it in its religious or spiritual understanding. Strangely to our modern ears, is in Timothy's world, science was a spiritual religion not a physical science, as we understand it today. That is, that the concept of atheism or agnosticism, notice Gnosticism, agnosticism, was about as non-scientific as one could get. In other words, it was just stupidity to think that there was no God. Nobody was arguing whether there was a God or not, or whether there's a spirit realm or there wasn't. They were arguing about what it was wasn't even part of the conversation. It was just stupid. It was obvious to the world, and still is when modern brainwashing is not repetitively employed, it's, modern, it's, it's commonly understood that a supernatural for, force, a spiritual force, a force higher than what nature can produce of itself, made the cosmos to function. That's just, we know that. It's not something you have to learn. In other words, not even the Gnostics were arguing against the existence of spiritual origin. They're arguing about how the clean spiritual cosmos interfaced with the unclean material cosmos. That's what they were concerned with. And their scientific diagnosis, gnosis, diagnosis, which means through knowing, interpreted the Hebrew scriptures according to the ideals of Theologies such as Plato and Pythagoras and all these really smart guys. And then they borrowed ethics from guys like Aristotle. Okay? All probably, every one of those men are probably more monotheistic than the average Greek of that day. Most of them admitted to some form of monotheism. One God made everything. And there, in Timothy's day, that was what was going on. Yet the doctrines of the Holy Scriptures through these men had to be interpreted through that philosophy, through the philosophy of Pythagoras, the philosophy of Plato, the ethics of Aristotle. Thus, it, replaced, it replaces the six points, or five points, depending on how you look at it, of what a true Bible believer means out of what we prior read in 2 Timothy 3. So, 
that philosophical, scientific, quote-unquote, understanding had to replace the points of what we understand from the Bible when we take the Bible as its own book for its own reproofs, its own correction, its own righteousness, its own instruction. We don't need Pythagoras to help us out with that, okay? And we don't need modern science to help us out with it either, or particularly science falsely so-called. A true Bible believer gains from faith in the Scripture through Christ the ability to not err. We don't want to miss the aim of faith according to the pure Holy Scriptures that we believe and we know are breathed from the Spirit of God that breathed everything into existence. The ruler of heaven and earth, the ruler of what is visible and invisible, Yahweh is he that is the total Lord of all and the creator of what we feel and what we don't feel, what we know and what we don't know, the invisible, the visible, the most super microscopic level that man has not even been able to see to. God has already engineered it, and he already knows it because he's Lord of it. And thus, his word is a total word as well able to explain the visible and the invisible. We understand what we see in reality according to God's choice to reveal how his people organize it in their lives. That's what the Bible does for us. It's evident that you can live in God's world and not listen to him. It's not up for discussion. We know it or else there'd be no law of God. We know that we can live in God's world and still not listen to him who made it. In many ways, he winks or ignores our disobedience on many, many levels, and thank God that he does. That is either because you are not a child of his covenant, or you are blessed by God at winking at your ignorance. It is not because the judgment seat of the anointed will not have you before it in the day of judgment, however. He's not winking at you so that he can ignore you on that day. He's ignoring it so that he can reach you this day. God's not tested by insignificant men, nor is he tested by significant men, men who've made a real impact on the earth, according to man's understanding. Rather, he is even at the time you shake your fist in the face of heaven, testing you by your own lusts. It's a mechanism that is proof that your inner knowledge, your psyche, if you will, is fully knowledgeable of God, even in rebellion. That's why you fight against it. You shouldn't have to fight against it if it's naturally not there. Why else would you have a desire to even test what you've never seen. Something must have known it was there, or else you wouldn't challenge it. What's the fight? The very fact that men prefix the word theist, meaning godly, with atheist, meaning ungodly or non-godly, or gnostic with agnostic, who represent an unknown spiritual realm shows that the abnormality that there is an abnormality which exists in being an atheist or an agnostic or else the original 
would assume there's nothing and build upon it, that you are something. Rather, we have to add negatives to it in order to take away from what is normal. It's truly amazing when you consider all of the ways man challenges the creator of what he cannot understand and never will be able to understand, as if he is more than a particle of a drop in a bucket, which Yahweh calls the earth. Yahweh says all the nations on the earth are a drop in the bucket. Just imagine what you are if the nations are a drop. And we're going to shake our fist at them, but we don't even understand how this thing's made. How is it that these men, Timothy is warned of, missed the mark of faith Paul's speaking about? The simple answer, which is also attainable in history at our modern time, but it was not attainable for Timothy yet, as he lived before what we know, what we have in our history, is by seeing how all of the sciences, and I am not exaggerating, all of the sciences which are not falsely so-called were developed beyond measure by those who had faith in Christ and in the validity of his Father who worked through his Holy Spirit, regardless of the denominational or faction of the Christian faith they were part of, it all emanates from belief in the revelation of the Word of God, starting in Genesis, as seen in the Holy Scriptures in the Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and English Bibles. Probably throw the German in there as well. But those are the most influential, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and English. Sure, those men were erred in points like we are. And perhaps Mendel, for instance, we know who he is, right? The monk wasn't just some rogue gardener. He was a Christian monk who discovered genetic science that they're still building off of to this day. He could have been possibly eating a ham sandwich the day that he discovered genetics, for all I know. Who knows? But Christ got the glory from Mendel's discovery. And... He may have been, and he certainly was, a faulted vessel, regardless of how good he might have been. And so are all of we. How about hospitals? Did you ever think that all of the hospitals, medical discoveries of medical science for the last 2,000 years that formed the foundation of medical science were by denominational hospitals of Christians? You know, like the Presbyterian Hospital, the Methodist Hospital. Why do you think they're all named that? It's not because a bunch of atheists had their hands in it. Atheists don't often care about people that much. Part of that morality problem. You can pretend and deny the cures and treatments discovered by quote-unquote Western medicine, as we oftentimes refer to it, but the truth is they do get the results, and they do have a true scientific application that often works, at least used to. It is when the experiment, as we have described it, they experiment not having the correct answers, and they will not admit to it, and they not admit to having a proven treatment, and that becomes mixed into medical science, that someone in the outer world catches them in that lie, in that science falsely so-called, that people start saying, well, we all know that they're liars and Western medicine really doesn't work. But the true perceivable miracles that medicine has developed were developed by Christians 
were they were perfected by Christians, and Christ takes the glory. In other words, when a doctor sews your arm back on after it got ripped off in an automobile accident, you can thank Christ for allowing that man to get the knowledge that first started experimenting to try to save you because the atheist would have let you lay there because you're just an animal. See the point? But Brother Joshua, they use pork-based insulin and it heals diabetics. Doesn't that shake your faith that God is true or that his law is no longer relevant for our modern world? No. It's proof that men are deceived and that witchcraft is even a grace given to the uncovenanted and the ungodly and the ignorant. Is it medical science? Well, it works. That's all I can say. For them, it has results that makes it a viable treatment for some, and discovered by a scientific method, no doubt. But it's not Yahweh's medical science, I would tell you. Perhaps it's not even witchcraft for the strangers outside of the gates of the covenant people. If you remember, Israel was allowed to sell what was unclean to those who were not of their own brethren. So in a biblical worldview, we can answer that question too. And I'm not going to lie to you or myself that such things are false. Like I'm not going to pretend like they don't actually do what people say they do and what they're proven to do because then that would make me a liar and well, Christians aren't supposed to be liars. So I'm not going to slant the truth for quote-unquote God's glory, but I have to understand it through the truth of truth. But regardless, in Yahweh God's world, Christ gets the glory. That's the point. The mark of faith or trust is established in truth. Real faith in the word of God and in the truth of his creation as it actually is, is how we learn. As it's given to us, not as we change it to suit our fancies or ignore it because it doesn't make us feel good. When you err by falsehood in any way, you miss the mark, you miss the substance of things hoped for. You miss the evidence of things not seen. Oftentimes we rearrange faith to accommodate us as fleshly beings, carnal people, to get what we want. We allow unwholesome words and ungodly doctrines, that means teachings, not just religious ones, to affect us. And those teachings come from those who have already erred from the faith. In this light, let us consider the context of 1 Timothy 6. We're going to start in 3. It says, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud. He knows nothing. Doubting about questions and strifes of words, whereof comes envy, strife, railings or fighting, and evil surmisings. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, men destitute of the truth. Notice this. This taught vain babbling leads to then what's then next said. It says, destitute of the truth, they suppose that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw yourself, 
Paul tells Timothy. And in opposition, Paul says to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is of great gain. Godliness with contentment. To be content and to be godly is the gain that we're after. And he's putting that in opposition of those who suppose that gain is godliness. There's an opposite. And then Paul tells us a truism, for we brought nothing into into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction. Notice that, drowns men in destruction and perdition. Drowning. And he says it all happens in ten for the love of money, because it's the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they err from the faith, and they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Speaks of it like it's an arrow. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou also are called, and you have professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickens or makes alive all things, and before Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, something interesting to take notice of is that what did Pilate ask Christ in his trial that's being referred to here? What is truth? That's what he asked him. What is truth? 15 says, Which in his time, in Christ's time, he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, only Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Or true is truth. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trusting in their uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute and willing to communicate laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the times that are to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. 
in ending with those thoughts and not having to explain it in great detail, it's fairly straightforward. We could always take time to go through just about any scripture at length. But it's pretty straightforward. And now we have the context of what was happening. Go back to our points to consider as we end here. Do not forget in this life. Do not forget as you learn new things. Do not forget as you come upon new sciences, knowledge that challenge the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. Remember that we must believe that the Holy Scriptures are given by the inspiration of God, and they are first able to make you wise, first wise unto salvation through faith, through trust, believing, which is in Christ Jesus. Second, that all are profitable for doctrine. All are profitable for reproof. All are profitable for correction. All are profitable for instruction in righteousness. That a man's perfectness or completeness comes only from God. For the accomplishing or the furnishing, this is the goal, of all good works. Everything that we do is done by that standard. Everything we know is known by that standard. Everything we try and we test is tried and tested by that standard. Don't lose it. Don't forget it. This is for News Covenant Minister.